Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 86 with Martin Gurdon on fly fishing and glass blowing. I just love to start by getting a background on my guests and usually it's fishing specific. So I'd love to get a background on how you got into fly fishing. And then I think after that, we'll kind of move more into the glass blowing. So um, just go ahead and give me your, your spiel about how you got into the outdoors and fly fishing. All right. So um, I've always been into fish and fishing. It's my mom is from Minnesota and, you know, so we grew up, you know, fishing for warm water species and all that. Um, but I never, fly fishing never interested it, interested me because I, I wondered like, why would you fish in a more difficult way to catch small fish? Like, that's what I thought it was all about. Um, and, uh, it wasn't until, um, you know, I had, I had gotten sober and I was like, you know, brand new, like two months sober trying to figure out what hobbies to do. Cause like, I, I didn't understand how to be a person basically. Um, and there was this, this other, this sober guy and he was like, let me take you fly fishing, man. And I was like, all right, like I'm down for whatever. Um, and, uh, and he took me up the frying pan and we got this like 25 inch rainbow and I had never seen anything like it. And I've been hooked ever since. Um, you know, I just, the, the whole, it, it was almost mystical, you know, the, it was February and the wind ripping off the, uh off a of hunter Creek and the snow drifts and we're just kneeling in the river, like, you know, handling this fish. And ever since then it's been, you know, it's, it's enthralled me, you know, the ecosystem and learning about all the entomology and, you know, the different rods and how to use them. And, um, yeah, I've just been hooked ever since that moment. I love how you, as the guy who, uh, was worried that fly fishing was just like the hard way to catch small fish goes out and has possibly the most extreme first day of fly fishing that anyone's ever had <laughs> you know, yeah like frying pan in february with a 25 inch fish is is uh no small feat for anybody let alone someone going out for their first time yeah well yeah well this guy justin who taught me he was a pretty extreme guy um <laughs> you know i thought that was the normal way to fly fish and that's still kind of how i do it you know it's like i i understand that you know, I could go down and like nymph the crystal and do all that stuff. But I like going out at, you know, 1230 at night under the full moon and mousing for browns, that kind of thing. The more extreme, the more entertaining to me. 
Is it the the process that enthralls you or the chance of catching a monster? Is it kind of everything about it? I mean, big fish are cool, but for me, it, it, it's not really even about the fish. Um, I just like being out there in, in such a um, almost primal environment. Um, you know, that's why I, I tend to avoid the most traffic spots these days. Mm-hmm. Um, like for me, what really excites me now is like finding the native fish, which is pretty hard in Colorado. Um, like I do a lot of solo backpacking and, uh, you know, it's almost as much about the place and my connection with the place as it is like the fish itself. Um, you know, the, the, the fly fishing is almost an excuse to go be part of the greater ecosystem. I could not agree more. I feel like, um, I've transitioned. I mean, I've, I've always been more of a numbers person than a size person, but numbers have even faded away more into, uh, the experience, the whole, the whole experience of the trip. And that often involves a lot of like six inch brook trout or, uh, you know, 10 inch cutthroats or something like that. But, um, it's, it's about that whole package and it often doesn't include a lot of big fish if what you're going for is that whole package because there's there's often not a lot of big fish in those places if you're really truly getting out there in these small creeks. Yeah. Yeah, we um it was a couple weeks ago we we drove the truck like 40 miles into the backcountry and then hiked another 10 miles and only caught one fish, but it was a really special fish in a really special place and I feel like that's that's what it's about. Like stocked, stocked fish, non-native fish. They just don't really interest me that much um, anymore. You know, it's, it's like the hunt and that's why, you know, places like Montana and Wyoming and um, you know, Canada and Alaska, like have such a draw on me. Um, You know, I feel like the further away you get from the city centers and the highways and the civilization, um, the more, uh pristine and and the more the more real the experience gets the further you get away from the world for sure i i feel like i find myself thinking about how this place is as it has been for for thousands or millions of years and only a handful of people in the grand scheme of things have ever gotten to experience that or witness that i don't know if that's ever on your mind when you're out there um compared to somewhere like a you know you pull off a highway and go fish and it's fun but it it doesn't feel like you're truly in a place that you know few people have ever gotten to experience in its in its raw form yeah yeah i definitely feel like i was born in the wrong century all this technology and and all all, all this stuff i i often find myself daydreaming about what it would have been like to explore you know the american west 200 years ago you know to be one of those pioneers on a wagon train going through yellowstone park you know with the the huge schools of Yellowstone cutthroats and the the wolves and the bears and yeah I know that you know even the places that are you know for example wilderness areas they're they're not developed the way that urban areas are um, but they're still I mean they're still affected by the fact that people are are developing around there but um, it is special to be especially in a place like in Colorado or the West in general where there are still these pockets that let you feel like you're you're back in that time period. Um, even if it's not unaffected by people, it, at least you, you feel like you are. You, it's as close as you can get, um, you know, in the lower 48 to really experiencing what, what it was like back then. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that place is Alpine Lakes, hands down, which is kind of funny though, because a lot of those didn't have fish until mm-hmm. people <laughs> put them there. But um, 
I mean, on the, on the species, in the species conversation, that's one of the only places that you can find like the Colorado river basin cutthroats and the greenbacks. And, you know, cause they're, they're, they've vanished from the rivers. And, you know, I, I caught in the past three years, I've caught two cutthroats in, in the rivers around here and all the rest of the cutthroats have been in Alpine lakes. Um, yeah. So what, what draws you to Alpine lakes? Is it, is it just that feeling of, you know, wildness or, uh, do you like lake fishing as opposed to stream fishing? Like what draws you to them? No, I think I, I prefer moving water. Uh, but I think it's the wildness and in particular, the, the, the species, um, like when I was in my, my dad and I took a, a road trip from Colorado to Washington, um, last summer. And we caught a lot of rainbows in Oregon and uh, in Washington. And I, I found that a rainbow there felt very different from a rainbow here. You know, I appreciated those rainbow trout more because, like, there's an an- ancestry to that, you know, particular genetic line in that stream uh, that goes back to before, you know, the rivers were, uh, before the ecosystems were changed so much by people. Um and that's an, like, I love whitefish. Um, I love you know, whitefish a lot, too. <laughs> a lot of people hate the whitefish and they're, you know, like we go out and we're like, oh yeah, we got like 30 fish from the boat, but we don't tell them that 28 of them were whitefish because people look down on that. But um, to me, whitefish are really special because they're the last holdout in Colorado of like the native fish in the native range. That are still where they're supposed to be, not yeah. having been planted back in by CPW. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, whitefish is often what brings me to the Roaring Fork Valley. We yeah. we incidentally catch trout along the way, but um, we've had more than one time where we're like, "Hey, do you want to go catch whitefish this weekend?" And you know, that's where we head. Yeah, yeah, whitefish are awesome. They're like zucchinis with fins, and they fight so hard. Yeah, I mean, they're basically like people like love grayling and idolize grayling, but whitefish are just grayling without the fancy fin. You know? Yeah. Yeah, they look pretty similar. The I feel like the grayling have the the um the beautiful aesthetics, but I'm um, like the whitefish get bigger and they fight harder. Uh, and they look they look kind of like grayling, just a little bit a little bit duller. Yeah. Yeah, whitefish are a ton of fun. So I know uh, you mentioned that we, like what got you into fly fishing was the addiction, and I know we we aren't going to dive too too deep into that because you've talked about it at length before. But um, just for a bit of a background on on this because it seems relevant to both your fly fishing and i assume your glass blowing as well um i'll let you kind of lead the way there and kind of give whatever backstory you think is relevant for people um on that yeah um yeah i I could talk the whole hour and a half about this if you if you let me but you know i'll kind of give you the short and sweet of it so um you know addiction is an extreme issue in our society these days like the leading cause of death for people my age is um opiate overdose um and it's uh it's kind of pushed under the rug in a lot of uh, a lot of different circles and conversations because it's it's pretty gnarly and people don't like to think about um you know in your neighborhood there are people suffering and dying slowly um and for me, that's exactly what it was. Like it, it, you know, it devolved, like it was this slow motion train wreck over 10 years that devolved into, um, you know, me drinking a gallon of whiskey a day, um, not leaving my house except to go to the liquor store. Um, and you know, it all culminated in, um, in this 
incredibly severe injury that I could have easily died from. Um, but that was like the, the moment that, you know, made me realize that I was going to die if I didn't get help and I didn't know where to go or what to do or, um, you know, but I fell into a crowd of people in Carbondale, uh, you know, sober young guys and they just love to fly fish. And, you know, it was like right before the world shut down is when I got sober. And so that's all we had to do. Like none of us had jobs cause we just got out of rehab. Um, and they gave me a fly rod and said, let's go. And <laughs> so we fished, you know, 10 hours a day, every day for 10 months. Wow. And in that, in that time period, I went from a complete novice to, um, what a lot of people would consider pretty adept at it. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, it, it's not what saved my life, but it definitely was a big part of it. Um, and as far as the glass blowing, how that relates to that, because um, I, I, I had been like, I didn't really even know what a trout was supposed to look like because I, I had been spin fishing and like, you know, catching stock rainbows my entire life. So I thought all trout were like 12 inch cookie cutter, you know, silver pond rainbow trout, you know, from a hatchery. And, uh, you know, and, and I had been making them out of glass, like what I thought trout were supposed to look like. And it was these guys, these silver guys who taught me how to fish. They were like, you know, you make glass fish and you don't fly fish. Like you're doing this backwards. Like right. most people <laughs> that make like trout art are fly fishermen first. And then the art comes from the love of the, uh, love of the sport, not the other way around. Um, and so that it, you know, when I started really catching like real trout, wild trout, um, you know, it really made me go back to the drawing board and say, okay, my pieces don't really look like trout. How do I change that? <laughs> and, um, and that's, you know, it's really been, um, a grind, you know, I've constantly trying to make changes and improvements and, like I, I would say I've, I've probably tried a thousand different things in the last three or four years to improve my pieces and only 30 of them have worked. Um, so it's an incredible amount of dedication and trial and error to sort of get to where I am now when you look at my modern work. Now, why were you making rainbow trout before you fly fish? Were you making other things too and you just happened to also make fish or did you kind of have a passion for catching stocked rainbows on a spin rod and you were, that's, that's what you knew. So that's why you were making them. Like, how did, how did that well, start? Yeah. So, I mean, the stocked rainbows on the spin rod, um, I wouldn't say it was a passion. Like towards the end, honestly, it was an excuse to drink. Um, okay. you know, and, but I had always, you know, I had always had a passion for fishing. Like, um, my favorite place to fish, you know, in the, in, in the dark times, I'll call them. Um, was the Colorado River down by um, down by Junction? Because there's huge common carp in there, like huge. Um, and you know, catching these 30, 40 inch carp on a spin rod out of this muddy water was it was ex really exciting. Um, and so, and I in those days I was a, a what we call a production worker in the glass world. So I made like cups, bowls vases, uh, oil and vinegar, that sort of thing. But I had always, 
you know, made the fish as sort of like a passion project. Um, I made my first fish when I was 15, um, and it was kind of like a generic tropical fish. Um, but I, it was, I was, it was so cool to like make a fish out of glass. You know, I was, I had no concept that that would like become my thing, you know, <laughs> but I just thought it was really, really cool to like be able to make these sort of like hokey little cartoon creatures, you know, in addition to the more Italian influenced vessels and bowls and stuff. So how did you start glass blowing? Cause I saw that you started when you were 13, which seems really young, but, uh, it, you know, it means you've had a lot of years of experience, but how did you pick that up as a, as an activity? Yeah. So, um, it, it has a lot to do with my mental health, <laughs> um, because I was always, uh, you know, now that I've been diagnosed, I'm, uh, have bipolar one and ADHD, which is like a wicked combo. Um, because it's basically like endless, you know, energy all the time that prevents me from sleeping. Um, and, um, and so I, I always had terrible, terrible grades and skipped classes and all this stuff. And I was like a, a freshman in high school, just like, you know, first couple weeks of high school. And I was actually skipping a class and I was looking for a place to hide. And I heard this like classical music coming out of this shack. And, you know, I poked my head in and it was this older guy and he was just sitting there like making these clear flowers out of glass. And he would like take it out of the furnace and just shape it with tweezers. And 20 to 30 seconds later, it was a flower and he would put it in the oven and start another one. And my mind was blown. I had like never seen hot glass. I didn't even know what it was at that point. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like the, and all I wanted to do at that point is like learn about the process. Um, and so I started hanging around this guy's shop and, um, you know, he taught me some things and then he took me on as an apprentice and the rest is history pretty much. Wow. So you just stumbled across this and I assume like, I, I mean, I don't have bipolar, so I'm just kind of speculating, but and maybe, maybe it's the ADHD, but I've heard of kids who can't focus well in school, but they do really, really well when they can focus on something they want to focus on. Was it something like that for you where it's not that you can't focus, it's that school is you know, boring and ha telling kids to sit in a chair and listen to an English presentation is not like, it's not working with them. Um, yeah. It, was that kind of what you were experiencing where when you finally found something that you were interested in that that's what stole your focus and you were able to, to really dive in deep on that? Yeah. And, and it was really grounding um, is another big part of it. Um, so, you know, I felt like my thoughts in the world was just racing past me all the time. But glass blowing is such an intense experience. Um, I mean, there's smoke and fire and, and heat, and the glass is so hot that it puts off its own light. Um, and it's such an intense experience that it grounded me in the moment. And it was the, the first thing that I had found in my whole life that was able to do that, um, that was able to, you know, sort of anchor me to reality. And, um, you know, as I continued to you know, pursue the glass blowing, my grades improved. I started making friends. Um, and you know, it was because I had that outlet. Um, you know, it, it made functioning in every other aspect of my life much easier. Now, have you found the same thing in fly fishing? Cause I've heard similar things, um, from people who fly fish where, 
you know, you need to get a good drift. You need to make a good cast. You need to focus on your fly or you're going to miss the take. And it kind of requires your attention to be on what you're doing. Um, and it takes their mind off of, you know, whatever stress they've got going on at home or whatever. Do you find a similar thing in fly fishing or is that, does that kind of occupy a different part of your life? No, I feel like they're extremely similar, uh, in more ways than most people realize. Um, you know, even down to the equipment, uh, you know, like when you're blowing glass, um, you know, I have a blowpipe in my hands with a fish on the end and I'm connected to that fish, you know, through the tools, you know, until either the fish smashes on the floor or it goes in the <laughs> oven and it, it, the parallels, you know, I could make more and more metaphors, but, um, you know, it's another way it's really similar is we can't actually touch the glass with our skin. Um, you know, unlike clay, unlike iron, uh, it's one of the only mediums of art where the, you, you can't physically touch what you're working on, like painting, you, you know, all of the other mediums, you can touch it. Um, but, and fly fishing is the same way. It's like, you can't, uh, now you, you can't handle the fish until the process is done. Yeah. You know, it's all, it's all by feel and, and using these devices and equipment to interact with something that you're disconnected from. Huh. I would have never thought of that, but it, it's so true. I mean, you could think of the glass falling out, you know, when it falls off and breaks, like that's the fish breaking your line or, or getting off. Like you, you don't get to get to the end unless yeah. you like finish the process. And then, then you, it culminates in the final, you know, I'm holding this fish, or I'm holding the glass fish, but you know, half the time you don't get to that part. You get to do half the journey and then it, it all falls apart. And you got to start over from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like the there's there's metaphors for the drift as well because, um, you know, it when whenever I make a piece, it's an incredible amount of prep work, um, and if I don't get that right, the piece doesn't come out right, um, especially for like developing new species. Um, you know, I have to I have to nail every aspect of it leading up to the big day. Um, or it just, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. So tell me more about the process. Cause this, this might be a good time. I know you had some things listed that you want to talk about. And part of it is what goes into it. So in, in case people haven't figured it out by now, you make glass fish, um, yes. <laughs> glass trout, trout for the most part, it looks like from your website, but, but a variety of species, uh, yeah. as well. So, uh, I know the first thing you had listed, um, was kind of the chemistry and the physics of glass blowing, which I think would be a good place to start so people can kind of get an idea for like what you're doing, what like what goes into the process of making one of these finished pieces. Because it's easy as an outsider to look at it and say, there's a glass fish, but I'm sure there's so much more behind the scenes that, you know, people aren't even thinking about when they look at that, like all the, all the blood, sweat and tears that goes into it. So I'd love to hear just like, give me the basics on glass blowing, and then maybe we can move into applying those things to how you craft a piece. Okay. So Glass blowing 101, I guess. Um, <laughs> We're all going to be experts so, by the end. Yeah. So it all starts with the chemistry, um, which, and I wish I knew more about chemistry. I just know what I have to know uh, for things to work. Um, but so the, the base of the material is silica, um, which most people probably know silica makes up most glassy substances. Um but the melting point of silica is about 4,200 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hot enough that it would melt our equipment if we tried to heat things up that much. Um, so the glass that we use is specifically formulated for 
um, you know, the hot work, the hot sculpting. Um, and it's a mixture of silica, sodium, which is a flux. Um, it helps, you know, it's a binding agent basically. Um, and then limestone brings down the temperature. But because of that, um, it's a very specific formula that needs to be compatible with everything else that we use. Um, so every material has um, what we call a coefficient of expansion. Every, every material that exists has it. When things heat up, they expand. When they uh, cool down, they contract. Um, and when you're working with glass specifically, um, everything you use needs to have the same coefficient of expansion. Otherwise, when the molecules shrink as it cools, everything will explode, which it sounds violent and it can be sometimes. Um, so we, uh, we start with, um, we call it batch. It's basically like mineral flour. Um, it, it comes in a white dust and it's, uh, it's made by a company we buy it from and it has all the right, um, you know, uh, ratios of the ingredients. We take that batch and we throw it in our big furnace, which is about the size of a Suburban. Um, and it has a, uh, a big pot in there called a crucible. Um, so we take our batch, we put it in the crucible. It cooks at uh, 2,300 degrees. And after 24 hours of cooking, it's glass uh, and it's clear, right? So that's where the, the majority of our raw material comes from is clear. Um, even though my pieces look very colorful, 99% of the glass in every piece is clear. We just use optical illusions um, to make it appear so colorful. Um, and that is because the colors come from metal oxides that are dissolved into the glass. Um, so like the pink that I use to make, you know, the inside of the mouth uh, pink, it, it comes from gold oxide. Um, and so you can imagine it's incredibly expensive. Like the pink glass is about $200 a kilogram and the clear glass is $2 a kilogram. Oh, wow. Um, so the more, the more experience you have, the more you can use those optical illusions to, um, make it more affordable to work. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I have all of these different um, different glasses. A lot of them are powders. I use a lot of powdered glass, um, that have a high metal content dissolved in them already. Um, but I have to make sure that everything is the same coefficient of expansion. Otherwise it's not compatible. Let me know if, if, if I'm losing you here, but no, no, this is great. This is exactly what um, I want to hear. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, you know, the raw material end. Um, and, uh, do you want me to go into, you know, the process of how we, you know, start turning that into, into pieces or. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um, so I start with the fins. Everything starts with the fins. Um, well, not really. If it's a species that I've made a lot of, like the brown trout is my signature. Like I know exactly what colors and how much of each color I'm going to use going in. Um, but so I just made the first tiger trout, for example, and. That took me about a month and a half of color testing. Um, and so I probably made 30 or 40 fins for this piece, just testing colors. Um, you know, and so I'll take some clear glass, take it out of the furnace. It's kind of like the cons consistency of like, uh, like honey when it comes out of the furnace. It's pretty gooey. 
um, but it cools um, in a unique way. Uh, so glass is like never really truly a liquid or truly a solid. Um, like most materials have a flash point, um, like metals, water is a good example. So like ice is frozen. It's a solid until 32 degrees and then it's a liquid. There's nothing in between. Um, whereas glass has um, a range of viscosity. So as it heats up, it goes from, you know, basically a solid and it gets less and less viscous until you get to about 2,500 degrees and it's, uh, it's, it's like honey. It's pretty runny. Um, so I take a ball, you know, a blob of glass out of the furnace on the end of a metal rod um, and I apply the powders um, with a sifter. So I kind of sift it on there, melt it in, uh, cool it down. I usually smash it out, um, you know, so I can, uh, you know, so a lot of light goes through it because that informs what the color looks like too. Because um, it's not just like, oh, this is yellow. It's how dense is the yellow because all, all glass, like light's going to come through it. So if you have a really dense color, it might be yellow, but it's going to look black if no light can come through. Got it. it. Um, and so, you know, I do a ton of color testing for each new species. When you say the fins, do you do you make the fins separately from the fish or are you using the fins as a way to test the color that then you apply to the whole fish later? Like, do you, are I, you attaching I do the fins? Both. Okay. I do both. Um, yeah, and I, I used to do it all in one shot where I would take like a blob of, uh, of clear glass colored in color or co- covered in color and just stick it right on the body of the fish and like sculpt it in the moment. But my quality control was like not there. You know, because if I screwed it up, then it's like, whoops, you know, this uh, fish has a, a free willy looking dorsal fin, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but so I do make all the fins beforehand these days. Um, and it, it's really nice because if I if I do screw one up, I just won't use it. You know, so I, yeah, I start with the fins and and I'll, I'll make them and I use, um, I use a lot of really kind of strange tools. Um, a lot of them are, are made specifically for um, glass blowing and sculpting glass, but a lot of them are not. Like one of my favorite tools is a, is a cocktail muddler I got from Amazon. You know, like those like um, little baseball bat looking things. Uh-huh. Um, and I love, I love it. It's like a really good shape for going in and sculpting like, you know, the inside underneath the, uh, underneath what would be the forehead. Um but so I have, you know, all these strange, strange hand tools and the fins, I'll like make a ball and then uh, smash it out with a pair of crimps, put the texture in. Um, and what I've been doing in, in the last probably year and a half is after that, um, I'll, I will, I'll take a pair of shears and I will cut the shape of the fin out of um you know the flattened disc with texture um and i use like a ton of reference material like whenever i'm working there's like pictures of trout all over the floor and like taped to the walls and stuff um just because in the moment it's really easy to get hyper focused on what i want or what i think it should look like versus what it actually should look like um you know, and for a while I was making the, uh, the pelvic fins on brown trout, like really pointy. Um, 
and then su suddenly I, I realized one day, I was like, wait, they aren't pointy at all. I think I was like handling a brown and like its fins were like totally curved all the way around. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been looking at my photos. Um, so I, I cut the fin shape out um, and then I break them all off um, off of the rod. And that's another really cool um, property of glass is um, like the molecules of glass are amorphous by nature. So like uh, iron, for example, um, it, all the molecules like to line up really, um, really orderly, like in a hexagonal pattern. And that's why it's such a strong material. That's why it can bend um, all that sort of stuff. But glass like has these weird, like amorphous molecules that don't fit together. And that's why it breaks in the first place. Mm, like okay. that's why glass shatters and other materials don't shatter. Um, and so you can use that to your advantage. So like after I make the fin, um, I, I put a constriction where I want it to come off. And then all it takes is a little vibration, which I use like a little, a little billy club and I just tap the rod and I've cooled that constriction and it just pops right off. Um, it's a really cool property of glass. And if you've ever, ever been to a glass blowing studio, and seeing a blower break something off of the rod, it, it'll blow your mind the first time you see it because it, it looks so insignificant, just that little tap. But, um, you know, it's the stress in the molecules that, that make it work. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So I have a stupid question. I actually have two probably stupid questions for you. No, um, far away. <laughs> the, first one, the first one is how is the glass attached to the rod? Like you have a rod, there's glass on the end, and at some point you're going to break it off. But what is what is the attachment point like what is what is holding that glass onto the rod um like what it what makes the glass stick to the rod i guess so like I, i'm you know i'm picturing a, like a rod in your hand and i know that there's glass on the end but i'm having trouble visualizing what is going on right at that junction is it what's on the end of the rod and how is that glass on there so if you've got a rod with a, a fin on the end you know yeah. what does that junction look like 
So the junction we call the moil, M-O-I-L, and it is, um, it's basically a cocoon of glass around the steel itself. Okay, okay. And that glass, um, specifically, we don't put into the piece. Um, so anything that's on the metal, when it comes off the metal, it will probably have metal in it. It'll, it'll probably take some steel with it as it comes off. Um, and because, you know, of the coefficient of expansions, if you have chips of steel in your piece when you're trying to anneal it, everything will crack. Um, so the, the moil we leave on the rod when we break off. So that's why we use those constrictions, str- strategic constrictions, um, you know, far enough away from the steel to not pick up any steel. Um, so if you look at, if, if you look at like the videos on my Instagram, for example, you'll see that I have, um, I have the piece and then I have um, almost what looks like a bridge from the metal to the piece with a constriction in it. And that's the point I'll put water on and tap it and the whole thing will come off clean. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. My second, my second question is when I think of, when I think most people, when they think of glass blowing, I think a lot of people probably picture the, you know, vases and things like that. You know, you've got, you're blowing, it's blowing up almost like a balloon and that forms some sort of, you know, bowl like shape. Um, where does the blowing come in? in something like a, a trout is the trout hollow have you blown it into that shape or they, um, is they blowing the term for glass making in general is it's not all actually blowing um no blowing blowing yeah it refers to the the, the blowing of it um so uh I, you know i start on a blowpipe and you know if if i were to make like a i don't know a 26 inch trout that's solid out of solid glass it would be incredibly heavy um, you know, and, and still they're even hollow. They're still like 10 or 12 pounds. Um, but so I, I start on the blowpipe and, um, I guess I can, I can delve into how I make the bodies. It seems yeah, like a nice yeah, uh, sure. junction. Um, so everything is built in layers. Um, so the amount of glass that you can take out of the furnace, the amount of clear is determined by the surface area of what you're, we call it gathering. Um, it's determined by the surface area of what you're gathering on. Um, so when I start, I take a little gather of clear and when I say little, I mean like a chicken egg. Um, and you know, I put a little bubble in it, uh, you know, maybe like a ping pong, ping pong ball size bubble. And then I put the pink, right? So I put a nice solid coat of pink, um, on that. I let it cool down and then I go back into the furnace and take another layer of clear you know, now we're probably the size of an avocado. And then um, I put a, uh, a really strong opaque white on, uh, which acts as a backdrop for the rest of the colors. Um, and the reason we do it in layers like that is as, you know, I inflate the bubble, um, everything like the, the core fills in. So when you look through it, what you're really looking at is like the, the first layer. Um, you know, kind of like a jawbreaker. Um, and you know, so I put the white on and then I take another layer of clear. And at this point we're like, you know, the size of a Nerf ball, a Nerf football. Um, and then, you know, depending on the species, I'll start putting on different colors. Like for a brown trout, um, I'll put on, uh, it's kind of like this smoky, smoky honey, like a rusty yellow. Um, 
it's hard to describe, but it's, it's become my favorite color in glass. It, it's, um, it's a little bit unpredictable and I like that. Uh, cause sometimes it comes out really dark and moody. Sometimes it's nice and bright. Um, uh, but I, I find that reflected in the brown trout that I find in the fork. Um, you know, some of them are so dark, they're almost, uh, you know, they're almost like olive colored and some of them in the middle of the summer, they're so bright. They, they look like a yellow piece of construction paper. Um, yeah, I've seen some that are uh, almost black at times. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like if you can get the, 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 uh, pre-spawn, uh, females like on their way up. Um, I've, I've been meaning to make one of those like really, really dark and their fins, um, their fins are like olive green with, uh, with black leading edges. Um, but I've, I've been meaning to make one, but it, it's like the catch 22 of a, of a successful artist. It's like, I, I have all these things I want to make, but then there's all these things I have to make. <laughs> like you know, commission so like, pieces that are yeah exactly yeah so my creative outlet kind of gets you know pushed off a few weeks everyone you know it's like uh like the tiger trout i've been looking forward to making that piece for like three months but just never never could because orders kept coming in and you know gotta gotta make what i gotta make um but uh where was i just to clarify before you go on, so is this this is like a, the form it's in now is kind of like a layered ball, but there is a there's a hollow like bubble inside that you've started. Yes, okay. yes, there's a bubble, um, and as I go, I do you know slowly inflate the bubble a little bit, um, and uh, yeah, and, and and after after the white base is on, it's kind of like at my discretion how many layers it needs after that. Um, both for like to build up the mass, but also, um, I, I like to separate all of my colors with layers of clear, um, because they like, I could put all the colors on one layer and then put a bunch of clear and then puff it up, um, you know, inflate it to, to size, but chances are it would not look the way that I wanted it to look because, um, you know, all of these colors are metal oxides and they interact with each other in really unpredictable ways. Um, like there's a lot of chemistry on the, um, on the molecular scale that happens when you put like gold oxide and silver oxide and chromium oxide and cadmium and all of these different metal oxides together at these temperatures. Like they, they change their crystalline structure so that what might have been red and brown turn purple. Um, which I had an issue with cutthroats turning purple for a while um, because, <laughs> because the, the, the red kept meeting the brown and wherever that would happen. So, you know, they would have like the brown back and the red belly, and then there would be a big purple stripe down the side where the colors met. Um, and so I, I keep taking layers of clear, um, you know, basically one for every different color I put on. Um, and most of my pieces have, I would say like three to four different transparent colors, um, that I, I sort of layer and blend into each other. Um, like I'll use brown trout as an example again. So, um, I put on that, um, that what I call the brilliant gold color. Um, and then I take another layer and then I put, uh, olive green, like a dense olive green right down the top of the back. And then I take another layer and then I put an olive brown um, sort of on the, uh, you know, near the top, but not on the back. So it kind of fades green, brown into gold down around the sides. Um, and then I take the final layer. And at this point, you know, it's, 
it's it's pretty large, like a bowling ball. Because um, it's got so many layers stacked on top. Yeah. Not not because you've yeah, blown exactly. it to a big size. Yeah, and I yeah, and I do inflate the bubble a little bit. It's probably like a bowling ball with like a peach size bubble in the middle. Um and uh and and then, you know, that's when I start sort of thinking about how much glass I actually need for whatever I'm making. Um, so I'll typically cut off like a third of what I have, um, you know, cause I just get so much mass as a, as a byproduct of not one of the colors to, to interact. Um, you know, so I'll determine how much glass I need. I'll cut off the excess, um, which I normally like just toss into the oven and then I ship them out with the pieces. So you get, you get your fish and then you get like a, like a, a marble the size of a grapefruit with the same coloration. Um, that's kind of cool. Which, yeah. People think they're kind of cool. And, um, I don't know. I, it, sometimes it feels kind of silly to, to put them in there, but I've gotten good feedback about it. No, I think, I think there um, would be a market just for trout pattern, giant marbles. I like, I honestly yeah. think people <laughs> would pay for that. <laughs> so. Yeah. But they, they don't really look, they don't really look the same. Um, because it's it's not until I inflate the bubble on the inside that all the layers sort of marry. Oh, okay. Um, so when it's that thick, um, and you know we're talking like in, in the finished piece, the the walls of the bubble are are only about an inch thick at the max. Um, but when it's like still four inches thick, you can really clearly see the different layers where the different colors are. Um, and when you kind of look at the side, you get a lensing effect where you can see like the individual layers that aren't stacked on top of each other. Um, it, it isn't until I, I put, you know, the constriction in to where I'm going to break it off. And then I really start to puff it up and elongate it. Um, and that's when, you know, everything kind of coalesces and it, it starts to look like the pattern that I'm going for. So how do you um, how do you blow it in a way that makes it long instead of just a giant round bubble? Do you just kind of like manipulate the shape as you're blowing it to elongate it? Yeah, so we have a number of invisible tools, um, and gravity is probably the most useful one. Um, you know, the more the more mass, like the the bigger the piece you're making, the more gravity affects it. But really getting it hot and just hanging it down at an angle really dramatically can change the shape. Um, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the old Italian glass masters say the, the less you touch it, the more beautiful it looks. And, you know, I touch the glass a lot, but I do adhere to that um, principle in, in, in some aspects, like making it longer. Um, you know, I, I use gravity. And then, you know, once I'm like, I'm kind of like looking for a silhouette. Uh, when I'm, you know, still kind of football shaped, um, I, I kind of want to get in my length ballpark and then, um, I squish it with a pair of cork paddles. Um, you know, I, I, we basically get it hot and then I just kind of smush it flat and, uh, you know, certain species like salmon and, um, brook trout and stuff like that have a, a, a dorsal ridge that goes down. Like I'll, I'll do that at that point. Um, and then I do like the final stretch with a pair of shears. Um, and that, that squares off the end of the bubble, which is really useful moving forward to attach the um, tail it, or yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause if you look, if you look at a trout there, um, there, the, the tail, um, 
you know, it, it doesn't, it's not like a rounded end with the tail stuck on. It's kind of a little bit squared off and then the tail kind of comes around the top and the bottom um, a little bit. And and so stretch, doing the final stretch with the shears and then cutting it, not, not like completely square, but a little bit square helps, helps me with that form a lot. Now, how do you create the mouth? And, and then separately, how do you create the patterns, um, you know, like, for example, eyes or or things like that, like kind of the final touches? Um, so the eyes, the eyes like the fins I make beforehand. Um, and this is something that I've, I've changed in the last, I think it was in March that I had a breakthrough on the eyes. Um, and how I do them now is I, I basically build them backwards but I put all of the same parts as a real eye has, which is kind of cool. Um, so, you know, eyes have a lens, um, you know, a transparent, you know, kind of rounded disc. Um, and so I'll make that out of glass. Uh, you know, I'll take a little bit of clear out of the furnace and I'll cut a constriction into it. And then um, I have my, um, my assistant who is actually my girlfriend. She helps me with the eyes. Um, but as I'm cutting the constriction, she flattens it. So we end up with kind of like a rounded disc. And then once we have that, I decorate the backside. So I then take um, sticks of colored glass, like pure color. Um, you know, I start with a little bit of black and, and I'm using a torch for this. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get the end of the stick of black molten, you know, put a little black dot right in the middle. And then I'll, I usually, I, I've like gravitated towards a few specific colors that I rotate between. Um, but my favorite one recently is like this, uh, it's kind of like an orangey brown, um, like really transparent, really nice color. Um, and I build up a ball of that on the end of the stick, just heating it in, in, in glass, you know, is subject to surface tension. So the more I heat it, the rounder it's going to get. So I just keep heating it and it kind of balls up on the end of the stick. And then I put that on the back side of the lens, you know, over the, the black dot, which is the pupil. And then I kind of, you know, smear that out to the edge of the lens. And then the part that was really the breakthrough is I take uh, pure silver foil. It's, it's pretty thick. It's like thicker than leaf. Uh, it's like aluminum foil, but made of pure silver. And I, I tear off a piece and I stick that onto the, um, onto what, you know, the, the colored glass, which, you know, is basically the iris color um, and then the interaction between the metal that makes the color and the pure silver leaf is what gives it that depth and those variations that you see um, and it, it's pretty wild because that pattern in the eyes it makes itself um, you know based on the technique that I figured out which is really really cool in my opinion <laughs> is that the only part of the fish that is not made of glass um, that silver piece well, I mean, there's metal in the colors, if that's what you're asking. No, I guess, like, are you inserting any other non-glass items? Not not talking about the colors, but just, uh, you know, putting any other objects in the, the trout, the, the way you're putting the foil in the trout. No, the foil is the only one. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it, it is, it, it's thin enough that I can get away with it. I haven't ever had an issue with uh, the different coefficients interacting in a weird way. Um, but it's interesting that you ask, is that the only thing that's, that's not made out of glass? 
Um, Cause that leads me to the question, like what is glass, you know? So it's, it's silica base, but gla glassy substances have a ton of different ingredients. Right. I guess you mentioned that at the beginning that you use this combination, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is inherently what glass is. That's yeah. what you're using. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, it sounds like I'm, I'm, inserting like a foreign material into the piece with the silver but uh some of the colors i use are silver dissolved into the glass um and yeah it's it's all yeah the the more the more i learn about the physics of glass the more i realize that i don't really understand what glass is um like it doesn't have a solid definition necessarily yeah yeah like a glass glassy substance like any any substance that vitrifies can be considered a glass. Um, so like obsidian is, has the same ingredients as basalt. You know, they're both volcanic rocks. One has vitrified and one has not. One has become glassy and one has not. Um, and uh, yeah, I know that's off topic, but um, I don't consider inserting like metal into the piece to be a foreign object as such. Um, like my, my mentor, my current mentor, my original mentor retired, but my current mentor makes these really intricate, um, uh, plant forms out of, out of solid copper. And we, uh, inlay them into the surface of these big vessels. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it works because it just so happens that copper has the same coefficient, but metals can vitrify as well. Like metals can become glassy substances. In uh, do you have an example of that that people might be familiar with? Um. Yes. Uh. 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 What What is it called? I'm um, bismuth. And what What form does that take? Like, what well, what glassy it, substance? It, it, it vitrifies into crystals. Okay. Okay. So glassy crystals, and and so like anything that's considered a glass is a a mineral or a metal that has vitrified, meaning it's, it's molecular structure has formed a glassy substance. <laughs> so that's what, that's what causes something to be glassy is the way yeah. that it's molecular, molecularly structured. Yes. Okay. And what, when, I think we all, like, I can picture what you mean when you say glassy. Um, is there a, a kind of a definition of like what that is? Cause I, I can picture it, but the way I would describe it is it's it's smooth. It seems a little bit transparent, but not necessarily, or maybe translucent is the right word for that. But but I couldn't really put my finger on it beyond that. Um, is there a formal definition for like what constitutes something being glassy or is it just, you know, it when you see it and we all know what we're talking about? Yeah. I mean, it's some, some of it is, you know, when you see it, but um, I would say brittle, um, crystalline uh, and, um, um unpredictable like one of the one of the hallmarks of a glassy substance is they do not handle uh transmission of heat very well um and there are some glasses that do like py well actually pyrex is like the only one that does oh, okay. and that's why pyrex borosilica is so widely used it's because it's the only glassy substance that um that you can like hold on a bunsen burner that won't explode that you can like cook brownies in um, oh okay you know that won't blow up and that's why you can't put other glass containers in the oven. 
Exactly. And that's why uh, Pyrex has boron in it. And that's a property of boron is um, heat distribution. Um, but yeah, like if, if I were to make a cup out of our glass or like a, a coffee cup and you were to pour coffee in it, it would probably explode. And so when I'm thinking of like a coffee cup, I'm thinking of, I don't know if it's actually porcelain, but like a porcelain type material. Is that considered like a, a glass? Uh, porcelain is considered a ceramic. And a ceramic is, and, and technically glass, like the glass that we make is a ceramic as well, because a, a, a ceramic is a, uh, a mineral-based substance that is fired to become more durable. And so most glasses are ceramics, but not all ceramics are glasses. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I guess I, I, when I'm thinking of like the coffee mug, it was... You know, I'm thinking of something that's almost like clay-like and then was fired to become what it is now. But yeah. it does have that kind of glassy texture, um, that shininess, the brittleness. And and that's that's the glaze, which is a true glass. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of funny. The ceramics glazes, it's, it's a lot of the same chemistry um, that we use. Like a lot of the same metal oxides go into ceramic glazes. That makes a lot of sense because actually I have... I feel like I've done ceramic stuff and you do, I forgot that the, the glazing was a part of it. Um, yeah. And, and that's why they call it a glaze because it's glass. Oh, I didn't realize that's where that came from. Yeah. So back to the trout. Um, how, how long does one of these pieces take from start to finish? Like assuming you already know the design, like I'm not, I'm not talking about the, the coming up with the colors and playing around with it, but let's say like a brown trout, your what you've kind of um, described as your, your signature piece. How long does it take you to just create one from start to finish, knowing the process the whole way through? Um, in hours or weeks? Uh, let's do weeks if that's an option, <laughs> I guess. Okay, so weeks, it's about two. Okay. Um, and that's because we need to wait for things to anneal. So when, because the molecules are amorphous, uh, when I'm, you know, done making the fins or the whole piece... I put it in an oven that cools it, you know, 20 degrees an hour back down to room temperature from about a thousand. Um, and that get, I mean, it, it never works perfectly. I'm never going to get like the glass molecules to align like, uh, steel molecules, for example. Um, but we can do a pretty darn good job of getting, getting them to be stable at least. Um, so, um, yeah, we anneal we, we anneal them, and because I make parts beforehand, I need to anneal the fins and the eyes, so that takes a few days. And then I need to anneal the piece, and that takes a few days. And then, um, but total man hours in those two weeks is probably like forty. Okay, um, so that's why you got to give both as an option because it takes that lo- it takes two weeks from start to finish, but you're not working only on that piece all day, every day, you're, you're exactly. leaving it to do something else while you probably work on something else in the meantime. Yeah. By, okay. by necessity. So typically I'll have like two to three pieces going at a time um, where, you know, I'll like make the parts for one and then make the parts for another one. And then we'll put one of them together. And then while that anneals, I'll like make a stand for another one. And, you know, it, it, it's a little bit scattered, but I've found that it's it's the best way to keep things moving forward, especially since um, pieces don't always work out. Like sometimes they crack in the annealer, sometimes they crack when I'm cutting them on the lathe. Um, you know, because 
uh, you ask like the, the glass that's on the metal, I need to remove the leftovers when everything is said and done. Um, so I have um, actually at, at my, my home here, I have a home studio that has all of these diamond tools, um, like diamond cutting wheels and all that stuff. And, you know, so I'll cut away the material that should not be there um, and then polish the area that I've ground down. Um, yeah. And I know uh, you mentioned in when I sent you the document that you kind of use fishing as a way to like redesign these pieces. And you, you mentioned when we before we got on here that um, you've had some like breakthroughs in the past two years or so. And you feel like you've really like your pieces have really gotten off the ground a little bit more. Like what are some of, yeah. what are some examples of some of those kind of breakthroughs you've had? And like, how have you noticed the difference in your pieces between like what you used to make and where you're at now, which it sounds like you're, you're much happier with where you're at now than you were just a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would say the breakthroughs are come in two forms, um, like technical breakthroughs where we figure out some property of the glass that we've been missing or some technique that, um, it makes things easier or faster or look better. Um, and then the other kind of breakthrough is when I catch like a really special fish um, and I take the time to, you know, obviously keeping them like wet in the net in the current, but, you know, I'll take like 15 minutes and really study a fish, um, you know, and like, I'll use the cutthroat as the example. Like if you look on my Instagram, the most recent cutthroat I posted looks completely different from the one, the, the, the previous one that I posted. Um, and that's because, you know, I spent a lot of time in Wyoming and Montana this summer. And, um, and what was really astounding to me is how pristine the ecosystems are up there. Uh, like we fished the snake basin, uh, snake river basin, and we were catching cutthroats all the time. Like every other fish was a cutthroat and, you know, being able to, to really study them and notice, um, like my biggest takeaway with the cutthroat was how angular they are. Um, you know, like the tip of the bottom, the top and bottom jaw are very pointed, like the dorsal ridge, you know, it comes to a pretty defined point on the back. All of the fins are really, really angular. Um, and so I, I would consider that like a, uh, um, a breakthrough as far as design, because, you know, I, I hadn't come into contact with. Like I came into contact with more cutthroats this summer than I have my entire life before. Um, and then being able to, uh, you know, take those memories and the photos that I've taken, because uh, it, it, the reference material is really different when I've taken the photo of the fish. Uh, because I feel like you, you get an impression from like a photo of a fish somebody else caught but it's different for me when, when I've like handled the fish and like experienced the forms and the colors myself. When I look at the photo, it's much easier for me to visualize that in three dimensions. I don't even make things, or I don't even make trout um, in any form, but I know what you mean in that I feel like I resonate more with photos I've taken of fish. I feel like I can I see that fish in the picture in a different way than if I were to just Google, you know, brook trout or something. It, it, it almost like conjures memories that I didn't know I had of what I was looking at at the time. And it, there's like some yeah. sort of connection that's made between what I saw before and what I'm looking at now that, that brings a more like holistic picture 
to that fish than if I were to just Google. Like, I, I mean, I can tell you what a brook trout looks like, but it's different than what I see when I see a picture of one that I saw in person as well. Um, and I'm not even making art out of, out of these fish, but I've, I've noticed the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like trout, and this might be just a bias because trout are like almost a spiritual experience to me. Um, but like trout have a presence to them that it's really hard to, to understand if you haven't like handled, uh, a, a special a special fish like not all trout are created equal in my opinion um you know like every every fly fisherman knows like when you catch that that really special fish and it doesn't even need to be a huge one um you know like if you catch you know that brown trout that has a really interesting spot pattern and like a bright red adipose fin um or like you catch that rainbow that has um you know, like wicked teeth and red sides. Um, You're describing all the frying pan fish. <laughs> well, I don't know. The crystal has those fish too. It does. I just <laughs> When I think of the bright, you know, the, the frying pan comes to mind when I think of uh, fish who seem to have their saturation turned up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, a lot of that is from eating shrimp. Um, you know, flamingos have their saturation turned <laughs> up because of, of shrimp. <laughs> But, um, yeah, I, I feel like, um, when I do manage to catch those really special fish, it, it helps me translate that presence into the piece. Um, like we caught a, uh, we caught a 33 inch Brown. Um, and it, it was like, it was a rodeo. It was, uh, yeah, I was on a seven weight streamer fishing and he's, he's, like I was on 16 pound tippet and it snapped my rod. Oh my God. Cause it went into the current and took off and snapped my rod clean in half. Cause I was trying to put the brakes on him. Um, but we, you know, we, we managed to land him on half a rod about a quarter mile downstream and in, in this, in the calmer water under a bridge. And, um, and this was on the fork if you're wondering. Um, I was wondering, I wasn't going to ask you exactly where it was, but I was wondering like where, what vicinity this was in. It was was on the fork and it was the time of year where this fish was most likely returning back to the Colorado after spawn. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was post spawn, but that it was not a roaring fork fish. Like it was a Colorado river fish for sure. Um, and, um, but like what I remember most about that, about that fish and that experience is just the presence that this fish had. Um, and like everybody has been like scrolling through Instagram and seeing those guys catching, you know, like the 40 inch Browns on the white river, but it's, it's different when, when that fish is like in your hands. Um, you know, it's so different when a fish like the size of your thigh is in the net. I think it also, I think also where it comes from has been a big thing. Like I think those brown trout, like a lot of those brown trout that come out of the white, or all those brown trout that come out of the white river, that's, it's known for that. So they feel like they belong there. Um, And so when you catch one, I feel like it's, not that it's not exciting, but it's, it's almost expected. Like that's why you're going there. But to catch a fish that feels like an anomaly for where it is, I think feels more special normally, even if it's not as big, you know, it's absolute size isn't as big as those white river fish, but to, to be caught off guard by that fish you know, imagine catching a 20-inch a brown out of a small creek. Like, that 20-inch brown isn't as big as yours, but 
to come out of a small creek like that would be so exciting that it feels like you said that presence that that you're just like so in awe of it that it's uh it kind of blows you away yeah yeah and that's that's what i really um like my biggest takeaway when i catch fish and then make fish is i'm really trying to like recreate that that presence um that every trout angler knows like you know exactly what i'm talking about when when I say like a special fish has a presence when you net it, you know, and it's like, you know, a special experience from, you know, when you land them to when you release them, um, you know, you feel that presence. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, let people like take that home with them and like display it. So are you making, do you often make specific fish? Like when you're making a brown trout, do you just make a brown trout or do you often make a specific brown trout? that you caught and you have a picture of and you are trying to like replicate its pattern and things like that? Um, typically I don't do that. Um, I've had many requests to do that, but I really, I don't make mounts. Like I make sculptures and yeah, like I'm actually working on a project, um, right now, um, which is going to come to a head, uh, next week. I'm traveling to Arizona to a much bigger glass studio to make this piece. And it's a it's a sea run brown trout inspired by the Tierra del Fuego, uh, you know the, those fish, and uh, and the 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 customer you know has sent me a lot of pictures of a specific fish, and like I'm going to use that as a reference as far as color and like the blue cheek and and the shape of the jaw, but I'm not trying to replicate that that fish. I'm trying to capture the presence of a fish like that. Got it. So it's, it's an inspiration and a reference for, for you know, you, you're trying to create a fish that kind of mimics it in, in terms of color and proportions and things like that. But it's not, it's not that fish. It, that, that fish is an yeah. inspiration for the piece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. I, I, I and I, I thought about the idea of like trying to be a, a, a glass taxidermist and it just felt wrong, you know? <laughs> in what way? Well, because I feel like these like making these pieces is such like a raw experience for me. Like it's like what you see is coming out of my head. Oh, okay. You know, I use references. Sure. But I'm not like, I'm not super interested in like trying to recreate a picture. It's like the difference between a photograph and a, and a painting of something that, you know, you've got yeah. photos for that, for that purpose of, of documenting exactly what that looked like. But the art is, is more of an abstract thing that it's, it's a mixture of what you're creating and what your, your brain is coming up with as you go and, and where it takes you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll use like the original, like, I don't know if you can tell, but I love Wyoming and like the Yellowstone area. Um, but I'll use like the original painters, um, in Yellowstone. They, they like the, you know, this is way, way back in the old days. Um, but they would paint all the features of Yellowstone in one painting. Um, you know, they would paint the falls and the river and the lake and old, old faithful, um, and you know, like the greater geyser basin and, and like a bison, they would put all of that into one big like wall piece, but there's no spot in Yellowstone where you can stand and see all of that. You know, they're just trying to capture the presence and, um, you know, the, almost like the, the feeling that you get from that place. Um, like, I feel like art, art is about creating an emotional response in the viewer at a certain level. 
Um, so I'm more interested in, in chasing that emotional response rather than chasing, you know, I- identical perfection to a photograph. Do you have a favorite piece you've made or is it, is it like choosing your children? Oh, they're all my favorites. It's like, I spend so long with each one and yeah, I don't know. I feel like every new one is always my favorite okay. until I ship it off. And then I feel all sad until I make the next one. <laughs> I get, I get, or, or my, that. my favorite one is the one that's cooling down in the annealer. The, the one that didn't <laughs> at, break at, at and is ready given... to go. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the one that I haven't seen yet. You know, because like I spend when we make them, you know, it takes it takes about two hours to like make the bubble, put the colors, sculpt the face, put the fins on, and then we put it in the annealer. And so like I've I've spent those two hours with it, but then I have to wait for five days to see what it looks like. You know, and the colors are never the same once it's cooled down. So I always have like this grandiose idea of what's in the oven. You know, and sometimes I open it up and it it is as grand as I thought. And sometimes I put it on a shelf in my house and don't tell anybody about it. So it's kind of like, <laughs> it's like looking at Christmas presents under the tree and wondering, you know, yeah, what's going to be exactly. In <laughs> That's going to yeah. be fun though. You know, the anticipation is, yeah. is kind of, you know, to bring this back to fly fishing. Um, I often have just as much fun planning the trip as I do. Like once I actually get started on the trip, like just the anticipation of knowing it's coming and, and getting everything ready and deciding which way to, to hike in and all that. Like, it's not as fun as catching a fish and getting it in your net, but it's it's still a very fun part of the process. Just just waiting for it to happen. Yeah, I I totally understand that. And like my truck is a good example of that. I I've built this trout machine, this just beast of a Toyota that can literally take me anywhere. And I think I've spent as much time working on it as I have driving it to fishing spots. Um. But, you know, it's the it's the anticipation of lining up all your ducks in the road. So, you know, that just to give yourself the best chance of having that incredible experience. Definitely. <laughs> I think that's a quality that a lot of people have. I don't think everyone has it, but I think there's a lot of people who who like the act of making something and making progress towards something. And that that process in itself is a big part of of what they're going for, even though it's not the destination. Yeah. Yeah. Like product oriented versus process yeah. oriented. And I would argue that a lot, well, I, there's probably a lot of anglers out there that really are product oriented. They want that fish and they want a picture of the fish and that's all they care about. But um, most of the people I fish with, uh, I think are more process oriented. And at the end of the day, if they went out and had a good time with their friends on the river and maybe got a bite, that's that's what they were going for. And then if they get a fish, that's great. That's, you know, the, the cherry on top. Yeah. So um, just to wrap up, uh, tell me where people can find you if they want to um, see you on Instagram because you have a... a really awesome Instagram. Um, but also if people want to look at your, your gallery, if they want to buy something from you, um, where's the best place to find you and get a hold of you? Um, so my Instagram is if you want to see like the flashy stuff, like I post the videos there and that kind of thing. Um, it's, uh, Martin Gurdon glass with underscores. So, um, are they going to know how to spell my name? Um, it, it'll be in the show notes and the, the title. So I mean, I'll link to all okay. this stuff too, but just if people are listening, they want to kind of get an idea for where to find you. Okay. Yeah. So it's Martin underscore Gurdon underscore glass on Instagram. Um, and then my website is martingurdonglass.com. Um, and there on the website, you can see um, I post um, every piece that goes out the door. I post in the gallery. Um, so you can see the sort of variations between, you know, what the, like what, what the variations are in a certain species. Um, 
you know, if you want to buy one, you can do it there, or you can get a hold of me uh, directly via email. Um, you know, you, there's a contact me section on the website. Um, yeah, and then uh, for all of the listeners of Fish Untamed, um, I made a discount code. Um, just use Fish Untamed ten at checkout for ten percent off uh, any sculptures. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate that code. And I do want to ask you personally: Do you make a whitefish? I have not yet. How have you not made a whitefish, being a fellow whitefish enthusiast? Well, whitefish are actually really complicated. <laughs> like, you know how many scales they have? <laughs> yeah, the trout are nice so, and smooth. They they look they look appropriate yeah, on exactly. glass. Yeah, um, and that's you know that was another breakthrough that I had in the last year is I figured out how to put scales on stuff. Um, you know, and that I made a bonefish and a redfish and a grayling and whitefish are definitely next on the list, but. Um, you know, that's like the catch 22 of the successful artists is like, I, I have the skills and the tools and the techniques to make a whitefish now, but uh, I'm going to have to wait at least a few more weeks, <laughs> you know, because I'm, I'm still working on, uh, on pieces that people have commissioned. It sounds like someone needs to request a whitefish from you in order, yes. in order to you, uh, to allow you to kind of play with that process. So um, yeah, it, it'll still be a few weeks in that, in that case though, because you know, it's uh you know, people are, uh, I have kind of a, a list going, um, you know, and I've, I've thought like when the list first formed about two years ago, I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like there's actually like a waiting list and the list has not like the, I still, the list is still there, you know, like it, it's, it's got different names on it now, but you know, it's constantly, you know, pieces are going out and new commissions are coming in and, and, um, I don't really have a backstock ever. Um, you know, I had, I had one brown trout, um, extra, you know, cause, um, I, I made it, um, for, uh, a commission, someone in Idaho and, um, and it, it was too big for their space. Um, and so I made another one for them, you know, the one that would fit their space better. And then I had that brown trout sitting around for like a week until somebody picked it up. Um, so any orders on the website, it's all, it's all custom, you know, I'll, I'll be in contact with you and, you know, you'll, you'll have some input on the process and, um, you know, especially with the, the stands are really fun that way because like I can orient the pieces really any way in the stand. Um, you know, like there's two main things that people request kind of the, the jaw angle down, which I think works really well for like the more predatory fish. It, it kind of makes them look like they're you know, about to eat a streamer or, you know, about to chase after a sculpin or something. Um, or, you know, the angled up, um, which um, cut the cutthroats are really popular that way. People, I think it's because of the Alpine Lakes. Stuff. Rising for a dry fly or something. Yeah. A lot of people's image, mine included, of, of like a big, you know, fire truck colored cutthroat is is that fish coming up from the depths yeah. for your hopper. Um, yeah, that I could I could totally see that being... If I think of, you know, the number of times I've seen cutthroats, like a big cutthroat coming from my fly, it's often kind of coming up at me. Um, whereas brown trout, you might never see because they're down, you know, they're down eating the big, the big stuff down below. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, another thing that I want to, you know, just touch on briefly is the, the naturalism series, which originally was spawned um, from failure, you know, so pieces break and it feels really tragic to throw them away. And, and it used to, they used to always break in the tail. 
And so the first couple pieces in that series, like the, um, they're, they're like breaching out of the water sometimes with a fly in their mouth. Um, you know, the tail had exploded and rather than throwing them away, I saw the tail off and then, you know, turned them into that, that, uh, that series. But the last, like, you know, half a dozen of those I've made have been commissioned, which is cool to have like an idea spawned out of failure or turn into like a series that people are, you know, responding to well. So is that the ones where the fish are kind of like three quarters of the way out of the water as though they're, they're, you know, jumping on your line or something like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely saw some of those on your website. So you're saying that now people are actually requesting that from scratch. You're, you're not yeah. uh, waiting for a broken yeah, line. Yeah. Which they're, they're a lot more work than just the fish. Um, you know, cause I have to make all the water. It's, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's really cool that people are, uh, have been receiving those well. And I actually, I had one on hand, but I just donated it to the, uh, the Rhett foundation, um, uh, auction, which is happening like this weekend, I think. Oh yeah. And you, you also mentioned, uh, I wanted to shout this out, but, um, you said that you donate a bunch of money to, uh, conservation organizations. Yeah. So, um, certain species, um, Atlantic salmon and steelhead in particular, um, are disappearing and it's really up to the anglers to change that. Um, so, um, I've, I've got a good relationship with, uh, Emerald water anglers, um, out in Seattle. It's a fly shop, um, owned by, uh, Dave McCoy. I think he has a podcast too, um, like undercurrent or something. Uh, but, um, I, I initially, I made the first steelhead for Dave, um, and his shop. I made one for him and two for his shop. And we made the deal that, um, uh, 20% of the profits from any steelhead sales go to the coalition. And I, I started thinking that was a really cool idea. So I started doing the same thing, um, with Atlantic salmon and I'm going to start doing the same thing soon with cutthroats. Um, because when I was in Wyoming this summer, I learned about the, uh, the bounty on the rainbow trout system, which is really cool. Um, where the rainbow trout in, uh, in the national parks and the snake river drainage have a, have a bounty system where they have like these tags with cash prizes. Um, so they encourage people to kill rainbows and then take them to fishing game. And then you might win a thousand bucks if you kill the right rainbow. Yeah. I've heard of those programs before. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm going to start doing that soon with, uh, the cutthroat sales. Um, once I figure out exactly, you know, which exactly who to get in contact to support that. Um, but yeah, I feel like my pieces, um, you know, it's just another opportunity for the fly fishing community to support the conservation. Absolutely. Um, not to toot our own horns as fly fishermen, but we're more interested in the conservation aspect than like other realms of uh, like the, the fish and game industry. Yeah, I agree. I feel like most of the, the fly anglers I know are, they, they do at least some effort to, uh, to benefit conservation. And I think yeah. it's, I think it's, it's awesome that you um, are donating your time and money and um, all your hard work to that because um, I, I feel like it's a win-win for everybody. People get beautiful art pieces, uh, conservation organizations benefit. It's just, it's just great all around. Um, so really happy to hear that you do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Martin, um, we can get wrapped up. I know you've, you know, you've got to get on with the rest of your evening too, but uh, this was a really fascinating conversation. I've never talked to a glass blower before and to have one that does uh, trout pieces, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to 
to get really excited about learning about that process, uh, seeing the final results. And um, I would highly encourage anyone, if they haven't checked out your work before, to um, just go on Instagram and see what you're working on because it's it's really, really inspiring and um, just really cool to look at. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody. fish are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.